If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. economic indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast. how are you doing there it is podcast time i hope you enjoyed the bank holiday john this week we're going to divide the podcast into two okay okay we're going to divide it into the first half i want to talk about germany because there's a change in government in Germany and there's a change in German attitudes, which is huge and significant for everybody. And the second part of the podcast, I want to actually do an appreciation of the life and times of the brilliant war correspondent, Robert Fisk, who passed away a year ago this week. Yes. And we're going to talk to his wife, Nelifer Pesira, who you will have known. She was on the show a couple of weeks ago. Yes. She's an Afghani refugee yeah. talking about Afghanistan. But I want to talk about their life, how they lived together in the Middle East, what Robert thought about the Middle East, how he came to prominence, his way of yeah, journalism, great stuff. and the legacy of Robert Fisk. So I want to talk about that. But first, I want to talk to you about Halloween. I'm loving your mask, Mac. It looks particularly good, doesn't it? It's my mummified mask. It's my Tutankhamun. Yeah, it looks look. really good. Yeah, I think I'm looking I think I'm looking particularly uh, fetching. I, I haven't dressed up for years. You know, I don't really like fancy dresses. No. But I, you did like the plane. <laughs> I like the plane. I like the plane. You know, I was, I remember when we were kids, people getting dressed up and one of our neighbours, who I can't remember who it was. Go on. Came to the door. I think it could have been Dubbo Dargan. Came to the door when we were kids and my mother asked him who he was and he said, I'm the Boston Strangler. Which, <laughs> which I thought at the age of seven was a particularly odd thing to say. <laughs> I mean, quite a duo thing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But actually, you know, you know, Halloween was actually always my favourite time of year. It was, That's a great time. It, it was the best. It was the best holiday by far because there was a kind of a sense of feralness. To yes, the whole there thing. was. Yeah, we were definitely feral. There was also a really a feral build up to it. Yeah, which involved robbing, and lighter fuel, and bonfires, and cops. And and bicycle wheels up into the electric wires. Yeah, actually, I don't know if you've ever done this. Uh, when John and I were kids, we had a speciality, which was to take bicycle wheels and our hangers, coat hangers, yeah. and you would actually stretch out the coat hanger and then throw the coat hanger up at the electricity wires on our street and blow the electricity of the whole road. <laughs> and that was the greatest crack we'd ever had. 
Trevor, an old demise and dies coming out, <laughs> shaking their fists. Get out of there, you colleagues. Yeah. And we just thought it was the most natural thing to do in the world. Yeah. And you're about 11 years old. <laughs> anyway, Halloween coming up. No, I love it. But you know, I was thinking of Halloween and I was also thinking Halloween also coincides with John. The clock's coming back. Oh, yes. And yeah. I was trying to think, because, you know, we've been doing a lot of things on, on, on cryptos and currencies and fiat mm-hmm. and exchange rates and all these things. Now, one of the great things about fiat currencies, it gives you an exchange rate. And one of the great things about an exchange rate is you can adjust the exchange rate up and down to become more or less competitive. Right. right. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out a way of explaining this uh, to students not that long ago in Trinity. And I was they were trying to explain, you know, how, how do you, and I thought of, Think about what happens when the clock goes forward, right? Or the clock goes back, right? Yeah. What we do is we all collectively involve ourselves in a let's pretend game, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like, yeah, think yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. We do. We yeah, do, right? So we have a choice. Either, either we can put the clocks back to grab an extra hour of light, or we can force the entire population to get up an hour earlier. Yeah. So we decide, man, ah, that'll be a bit of a pain. Let's put the clock back, right? So we all involve ourselves in this giant game of pretend the day is longer than it actually is, right? And pretend it's 10 o'clock. And we know it's actually 11 o'clock, right? Because we don't want to get up early. So we just do the yeah. easy thing, which is change the clock. <laughs> now, adjusting the currency is exactly the same. If you were a country that wanted to become highly competitive, right? What you would do is you'd force all your workers to work harder to get up earlier or to work harder, okay? Yeah. Right? And in so doing, you would expand the production of the economy and in so doing, you would be able to sell more goods for less, right? Right, yeah. Or you just change the exchange rate and you pretend you've suddenly got cheaper and more productive, but you haven't. You've just actually, it's a bit like changing the clocks, right? So the idea is that now in the world, we have this huge momentum towards saying that changing the exchange rate is wrong and fiat currencies are wrong and et cetera, et cetera. But if you actually look at very successful countries, what they've almost always done is they've almost always devalued their currencies after a crisis, yeah. fixed that currency at that low level of devaluation, bought in competitive gains for nothing from the rest of the world, been able to sell their products more cheaply to the rest of the world, and thereby kickstarting the economic recovery through exports. Right. So we're talking China, Japan, Germany after the Second World War. All these countries had this moment where you could actually change your exchange rate. So you bought yourself a couple of years' competitiveness against your enemies. But, but when, you ex- when you change your exchange rate, I've never really quite understood this. If you devalue your currency... Like, what is the true value then of the currency? Well, there's no real true value of currency. So if you divide, it depends really on the composition. So if you're a very, very small open economy, as Ireland is, mm. what happens is if you devalue your exchange rate, which we did seven times. Remember we had the punt? Yes. We devalued yeah, yeah. it seven times in 10 years, which is quite an achievement, actually. Right. <laughs> right? And we used to let it devalue all the time and we let it slide down. It was, a, it was called a snake in a tunnel. It doesn't matter. This is the expression. We, right. we used to, we were always... <laughs> snake in a tunnel. Yeah, this is what we used to divide it. So, but the idea is that nobody really knows. But in this very small open economy where imports and exports account for more than 100% of GDP, which is the case of Ireland, right. which is very unusual, right? Yeah. When you devalue your exchange rate, the competitive gains usually disappear. Why? Because if you devalue, yes, your export prices 
and your exports are cheaper for foreigners, yeah. okay, so they can sell more of whatever. But your import Imports, prices yeah. go up, yeah. and import prices in a small open economy are the main dictator of inflation. Yeah. So you get internal inflation as well. So what happened in Ireland in the 1980s, we were kept devaluing. This is when Gareth Fitzgerald used to talk you know, about how great yeah. an economist- He used to mumble. He used to talk about how great an economist he was, yeah. but he ran the place like Argentina. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like he's talking yeah, yeah. about economic theory, uh, but in actual fact, the place was like a, a small version of Brazil with no samba right. and no football, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but bigger countries who derive most of their inputs locally can have massive, massive gains from devaluation. Yeah. And that's a very interesting phenomenon. And that's one thing. So the best way to look at when bigger countries devalue it's looking at it from the perspective of you're changing the clocks. Yes. So what you're actually doing is you're robbing yourself and others, but you're involving it through a great game of let's pretend the exchange rate is different. <laughs> right. So that, these are the things I was thinking about because this week, John, we've seen a massive change in the one country that used to be the real anti-inflationary legionnaire, which is Germany. And right. I want to talk to you about the significance of the resignation of a man you might not have heard of, Jens Wiedmann. Oh, yeah. Who was the head of the Bundesbank, one of the old school German inflationary hawks. He has retired early from the Bundesbank. You, you have mentioned him before as one of the orthodontists. <laughs> <laughs> a bit like an orthodontist, but an ortho-economist, right? Ortho-economist. And this is, this, is the economic, this is the economic rules and regulations that really defined Germany for the last 40 years. Yeah. Germany at the moment is trying to put together a coalition. This coalition is the post-Merkel world. It's going to be profoundly different. And what happens in Germany happens, you know, Ireland and the English-speaking world obsesses about Joe Biden and, mm. and you know, Boris Johnson, because they're theater. We can understand them when they speak. Yeah, yeah. But in actual fact, for our real economy, what happens in Germany, in German, is of much more consequence. And amazingly, we don't focus on it. So I suppose the big thing now that Mama Germany is retired, like the new German regime, how is that going to be different? I think it's going to be really, really, really different. And I think what it's going to come down to is a battle of priorities in Germany. Mm. In parenthesis, between climate change on one hand and inflation on the other. Right. So what has happened? When I started economics years and years ago, there was this orthodoxy in Europe, which was driven by central banks, which is that all inflation everywhere is a problem, number one. And inflation is, as Milton Friedman said, always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Okay, right. so if you print more money, you get inflation. Right. Right. So that was the orthodoxy, and that was largely driven by Germans. And the reason it was largely driven by Germans is that the German historical narrative was that the 1922-23 burst of hyperinflation in the Weimar Republic so undermined German trust and faith in German democracy that it undermined the Weimar Republic. It led to a huge middle class fear, anxiety, because their savings had been wiped out. Mm. And then when Hitler came in, he latched onto that and he fermented this anti-establishment view that the establishment was robbing you via hyperinflation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the reality 
is different, but that doesn't matter. Every nation has their own story, right? The reality was that Hitler came into power not during a period of inflation, but in a period of deflation, deflation. right? Because yeah. Hitler came to power in 1933, 10 years after the hyperinflation. So actually what was quite interesting is during the hyperinflation, the establishment parties of the Weimar Republic did better. Right. So it was only yeah, yeah. deflation when the extremists did better. But anyway, be that as part of that. Mm. So the Germans come after the Second World War. Their Reichmark is destroyed. The, the currency is destroyed. They set up two institutions that are fundamental to understanding the Federal Republic of Germany. Well, they actually set up three. One is the Federal Republic. And the yeah. Federal Republic allowed German regions a huge amount of autonomy. And the reason they did this was they never once wanted, again, all the power centered in Berlin. Right. Right. They also enshrined the rights of citizens, with the right of the citizen to go to the constitutional court in Karlsruhe. Yes. And the constitutional yeah, yeah. court said, if you feel that anything that's passed is against the German constitution, you as a citizen can go to the constitutional court and you can say, I'm worried about this. Yeah. The reason, again, it is, is because Hitler and the Nazis destroyed the constitution yeah. and deployed the constitution to start a war, to persecute Jews, gays, anybody, socialists, whatever, right? And then the third idea was that anchoring this system has to be stable money so that the Deutschmark has to be the most stable currency. So therefore, to get to the top of the Bundesbank, you had to be as hawkish on inflation as anybody else, yeah. or the most hawkish, right? And yeah. that has always been the trajectory. So even my years working that game, there was a guy called Hans Otto Pohl, who was the head. There was a guy called Tietmeyer, who was the head of the Bundesbank. All very remote, very austere, very Germanic people. Yeah, yeah. And their idea was that inflation is... Yeah, whatever you do, don't do inflation. Don't do inflation, right? And that meant, and it's interesting you say that, that meant don't borrow too much money. Yeah that the government deficits should always be under control. Now, where this ideology has, where this ideology can be seen in the most evident fashion for Irish people, for all non-Europeans who are not economists, mm. is in the Maastricht Treaty. The Maastricht Treaty was written in the Bundesbank. Oh, right, right? okay. You know, this, we will have very, very low levels of deficits. We'll have very low levels of debt. We'll have inflation targets, yada, yada, yeah. right? So that was very much the... European mainstream for the last 40 years, and it was very much bulldozed by the Germans, who said, look, if you want our currency, the Deutschmark, to be dressed up in your Mickey Mouse currency, the euro, which is basically what happened, yeah. right? We want to put in all these rules and regulations, which means that the free spending Greeks and Paddies and yeah. Italians... Well, that's why they made us vote for it twice. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's precisely. Yeah. So basically, you don't give the keys of the kingdom to the delinquents yeah. of which we are involved in, right? So basically you have all these delinquents on the, the extremities of Europe. Yeah. Ourselves, Stavros, Paddy, Guido, Diego, you know, João Pedro, all these guys, right? And of course the French pretend to be Germans, but we all know that France yes. isn't a little Germany. Yeah. In economic terms, it's a big Italy, but they don't want to say this, right? Right. Okay. Controversial. But all this is going on. So this is, this is the orthodoxy. It's all now crumbling. The reason it's crumbling is there's a generational shift happening in Germany, right? So Mrs. Merkel is the old generation, right? Mm. And all her cronies, henchmen, advisors are all from the old generation. They're brought up with this fear of inflation. 
In the 1970s, the German economists say, well, look, I told you so. Inflation mm. came through. So even yeah, yeah. me more vigilant. All those people are now disappearing. They're all resigning. So the people who actually learned, yeah, who learned economics, who were in university or started their jobs in the 19, late 60s, 1970s, they're all now retired. Yeah. Right? So a new generation is coming up. A new generation is saying, hold on a second. First thing is all this fear of inflation and all this idea that if we print money, we'll get inflation. Well, it's been almost comically wrong. Like, you know, the, you know this expression, the boy who cried wolf? Yes. So yeah, eventually yeah. you just say, man, you know, we've had money printing since 2008 on a alfresco monumental scale and not a jot of inflation. In fact, the ECB keeps missing its inflation target. European inflation keeps coming in lower and lower and lower, right? Yeah. That's because so, it didn't go to the people initially. It went to... They went the, to the rich guys. Yeah. yeah. But still, the whole idea is that if you lay claim to the tabernacle of economics yeah. and you say that there is a direct relationship. This is the water into wine idea, right? Yeah. Between money, the, the money supply and inflation. And if you make that your creed and it never happens, yeah. then eventually people say, oh, hold on a second, that's yeah. wrong. Right? That's the first thing. Second thing is on the generational change is that you have a whole new generation of economists coming up thinking, actually the biggest problem for Europe is climate change. Not inflation. Yes. And the way yeah. in which we deal with climate change is the state heavily, heavily invests in green technology. Yeah. Throw money out. In old, yeah, exactly. So how do we do that? Well, we have to borrow. So suddenly you see state borrowing goes through the roof, right? Yeah. And the Orthodox German view was if you borrow too much money, the state does, what will happen is the private sector will be elbowed out. Interest rates will go up, okay? Mm -hmm. The private sector will be elbowed out by the public sector and private sector investment will fall, right? And okay. the economy will contract because yeah. the public will actually absorb in too much of the private sector money. Opposite has happened. So <laughs> as interest rates, wow. so as government debts have gone up and up and up, interest rates have fallen down and down and down. So the relationship between government borrowing and interest rates, which is always taken as- We are in a, in a unique kind of period. But yeah. we are, but most people are saying, well, hold on a second. It's like there's a great, you know, the shibboleths. I've talked about them yes. before. So the yeah. shibboleths were in the Bible. They used to go around. With their mantras. With the mantras. Yeah. And just knowing the mantra was sufficient for you to be uh, a holy man, a shaman, right? Right. Okay, you're a member of the shibboleths. So they keep the mantras. But what happens is the mantras are all wrong. Eventually people say, I hear. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So what you're seeing is this huge shift in Germany. And- in a way, the Germans used to kind of fetishize low public debt. It was like a, it's like a weirdness they had. It's like putting, you know, going to one of those. <laughs> Stop. Like Stop going, right there, Mike. It's like going to one of those dungeons in Berlin <laughs> and putting a snooker ball in your mouth. Do you know those fellas? I do. Right. I do. So imagine, I've heard of them, Mike. Imagine, right. Imagine you're in a I've gimp. I've seen your pictures. Imagine you're in a gimp suit at Halloween, right? It's the economic equivalent of a gimp suit, right? right. It's the fetishization of... Low, low government debts. Okay. <laughs> right. Did you ever see that scene in uh, Quentin Tarantino's? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, bring out the gimp. Bring out the gimp, yeah. Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Extraordinary yeah. scene. Really creepy scene. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then do you remember the revenge? Who owns the motorcycle, honey? It's a chopper. Who owns the chopper, honey? Zed. Who's Zed? Zed's dead, honey. Exactly. And do you remember the punishment that was meted out? To Zed. Yes. 
I'm going to get me low torches <laughs> and we're going to get medieval on his ass. <laughs> he was into Dante too. Of course he was into Dante. Anyway, stop. The fetishization of low government <laughs> deficits, okay? That's gone. So basically what you have is you have a generational change, the fact that the inflationistas got it wrong, the fact that the low budget people got it wrong, and lots and lots of Germans are saying, hold on a second, we need to invest hugely in public infrastructure. I don't know if you've ever driven through Germany, but I've driven through Germany a good few times because mm. I had to drive to Croatia because the bloody dog. So I had to yeah, drive yeah, yeah, the yeah. feckin' dog to Croatia from Dunleary to Croatia. Mad stuff. <laughs> That's right. a hell of a trip. Yeah, and it is. And, and Germany's very big when you drive through it. And I would have expected German, you know, we always think German motorways and public infrastructure is great. It's yeah. not. Really? It's really, really. I thought the Autobahn was the envy of the world. The Autobahns are full of roadblocks. They're full of roadworks. It's full of traffic. You know, it's not the envy of the world. Wow. And a lot of Germans are saying we need to spend on public investment now yeah. because we are actually falling behind. So what you're seeing is this shift. And this is coming in the personality of the individuals at the top. So Wiedmann represents old Germany. They're now gone. He's going to be replaced with somebody at the Bundesbank. Do you know who that is yet? No, I have no idea yet, but it's going to be somebody much more inclined to say to the Bundesbank, you know, keep the bond buying schemes yeah. going, yeah. do whatever you want to do. And so what we're seeing in Germany at the same time as there's been a political shift away from Mrs. Merkel is an intellectual and ideological shift away from her economics and towards something that looks much more center, center left in the old school. Yeah. And all these people are leaving, it's interesting, all these people are leaving the theater of operation, so to speak. So we're going to see a whole new Germany. And the key thing, John, is what happens in Germany affects us all. It might be a lag of a year or two years, but it will affect everything, the way we do economics, the way we do politics, and clearly the way we do business. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So, John, this week last year, Robert Fisk, who I got to know pretty well over the years, uh, died quite suddenly, had a stroke. And his journalism, for many, many people, particularly Irish people, his journalism in the Middle East was excellent, second to none, war reporting in the old school fashion. Now, his mm. wife, Nelifer Pesira, who again I got to know, 
you'll probably remember her from the show. She's from Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. They've been together, I think, for the last 25 years. They've had extraordinary times together. I want to talk to her about Robert Fisk, about his legacy, about his work, about their time together, but also about the Middle East and how it's changed over the yeah. years, the events yeah, yeah, yeah. that will have, uh, that will have changed. A really unique view of it. Yeah, so let's talk to Nellifer. Nellifer, how are you? Good to see you. Thank you very much, David. Uh, Nellifer, Good to talk to you. Listen, Nellifer, let's, let's get straight into this because uh, Robert was a big, big hero of mine. Over many, many years, Robert and I did a whole lot of, actually, we did many, many gigs together uh, where I just sat and asked questions and he unleashed his, I would say unleashed is the is the best description, unleashed his knowledge on the audience, on myself, on the watching public, was unbelievably generous with his time, with his knowledge, with his opinions, with his insight. So I want to go back to, I want to talk, make this about Robert Fisk, the journalist, the man you married, the journalist, Robert Fisk. Tell me about Robert Fisk. He was 40 years in the Middle East. He also was well, in Northern Ireland in the beginning. So tell me where he cut his teeth and, and, and his whole arc of his career and the events that really formed Robert Fisk, the journalist. Well, uh, there were three sort of specific areas that he himself talked about quite frequently. The first one was in Northern Ireland. Now, Robert was in his 20s, young startup reporter, and quite ambitious about wanting to be a distinguished foreign correspondent. Uh, this is the times of the Troubles in the North, although Robert always referred to it as war. He never actually referred to it as Troubles. And he was based in Belfast working for the Times of London. This is the time there is a little story about him that one of his colleagues just recently told me that they would be a lot of journalists at the time um, in Northern Ireland covering the troubles. And Robert was one of so many. They would be out on a day long sort of covering the rights in Derry. And um, at the evening, the reporters will go to the city hotel bar just to take a break. And they will tell their editors, if you need an update, call the PA, which is the Press Association uh, person, to give you an update and file an update. Robert alone was the one person that went back on the streets himself every evening instead of just going and sitting in a bar. And he would update the Times personally. So one evening, apparently, he shows up at the city uh, hotel bar and he sees the PA um, you know, Press Associates guy sitting there with all the rest of the crowd. He looks at him and he says, aren't you supposed to be out on the streets providing updates? And the guy says to Robert, no, it's okay. I told my desk that they get uh, updates from the Times. So Robert basically put the guy out of his job by doing so much more than was expected of him. But um, he quite seriously referred to the um, covering of Northern Ireland as preparing him for the Middle East because it was there that he learned to stand up to the authority. And he used to refer to it that it was my army, the British army, that um, would lie about what was going on. And Robert, one after another, keep exposing those lies. And because of that, he got into a lot of trouble. Um, that's why he came to Dublin. One time he actually escaped, ran away and came to Dublin to uh, take sort of a bit of a sanctuary for a few days. Um, but that prepared him for covering Middle East for the next 44 years 
um, after that. So that was kind of the one seminal so, moment so, in his life and career. So that's interesting. So the North, the conflict, the troubles, the war, the ethnic divisions, the British army involved, the various different militias, the IRA on the other side, the various different incarnations of the IRA, everybody lying on both sides, everybody trying to spin. This is what actually cut his teeth. And he said, okay, now I understand. I'm I'm a, li- I'm a little bit, because nobody's ever prepared for the Middle East, but I'm a little bit prepared for what I'm about to do now. So tell me, how does he go to the Middle East? Because again, when I and many, many people listening, and if you are younger, I'm going to tell you all about Robert Fisk in a second, okay? And Jennifer and I, about uh, the type of journalist he was. And actually what journalism should actually be in many, many cases. But So he goes to, he goes to the Middle East and he's in Lebanon in 1982. Tell me about this. Well, Robert gets a call from his editor and they offer him uh, to go to Lebanon. They offer him to go to the Middle East. They give him a Middle East desk. He chooses to go and stay in Lebanon and makes Beirut his home, his home base. And um, he does, um, he sort of talked about it and also often would write about that when his editor told him, we are offering you the Middle East, he felt it was um, a king that was being offered some kind of a kingdom. Um, He was all excited about it. But when he arrived there, of course, discovered that this is a place of deep conflict, historical divisions. But the way Robert understood it was that how after the First World War, the British and the Allies divided borders or draw the borders of the Northern Ireland. They draw the borders of the current Middle East and the Balkans. And his understanding was that all of these places became places of conflict that are still unresolved to some extent. They might have changed shape and form, periods of maybe tranquility or or some kind of a peace, but the actual conflicts had started from that point in history. So um, history was very important for Robert. And because of that, he kept going back to places. One of the things that immediately happened. Now, he went to Beirut in 1967, sorry, 76, and he was 29 years of age. And he often used to say, well, every birthday, he used to say, I'm still 29, because the Middle East is still the same place, stayed the same apartment, the same flat. This is the time of the civil war in Lebanon. And one of the incidences that made Robert internationally recognized as a foreign correspondent was the uh, massacre that happened at the Palestinian refugee camps of Sabra and Shatila. Now, uh, these camps are in Lebanon. The Palestinians were refugees living in there. And it was the uh, Lebanese uh, Christian phalangists, which were allies to the Israelis at the time. They had gone into these camps and they had massacred 1,700 civilians, including women and children. And this is kind of something. This is this is kind of something. That's this is 1982 during the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. Invasion of Lebanon. Okay, exactly correct. And so in that time, Robert, with two of his colleagues, one a PA reporter, Bill Foley, and Carsten Twight, who's a Norwegian TV reporter, they walk into the camp and they discover these dead bodies heaps of it. And Robert has this incredible descriptions of how he would be shocked to discover the kind of atrocity that was committed. And so he wrote about it, and the Israelis were denying it. But eventually, because of Robert's reporting and persistent reporting and providing evidence and interviewing families of survivors, the Israeli Khan Commission did uh, condemn Ariel Sharon personally as being responsible for this massacre. So 
from 1982 onward, Robert, every year, would write about the same massacre. And he continued to go to the same camps. These camps are still in Beirut. They're still, you know, just outside in the suburbs. And uh, they're mostly, of course, Palestinians plus Syrians, refugees, and plus so many others since then. But that was the moment when Robert, again, is, went against the grain, is stood out for what he considered as a great injustice. And uh, no matter how much pressure there was, his editor was getting calls and uh, whatever complaints he was receiving, he stick to what he considered was the truth of what he saw as a reporter. And that became another moment in his career where he said, you will only know the truth if you go and see it for yourself. So boots on the ground. That was very important for Robert. You've got to be there. You can't just sit in your office desk and read agency report and write a piece. You must go and see it for yourself, sniff it, smell it, you know, talk to the people on the ground. And that became his method of journalism, which to this day is recognized as a very important way of, of as you said, this is the real journalism. And tell me, he also was one of the very few, or maybe the only Western journalist to meet with and interview Osama bin Laden, as far as I know. And that's another yes. iteration. So, because we have the Northern Ireland in, in the north, you can say this is a, a this is an ethnic sectarian conflict against the background of colonialism about historic occupation. In the case of the Lebanon, you have multi ethnic states created by drawing lines in the sand again post colonial. Then you have the conflict with Israel. The Palestinians are kicked out of Israel. They go to Jordan. The Jordanians kick them out. They go to Lebanon. You have this constant sort of historical backdrop. With Osama bin Laden, you have something quite different. You have a sort of a jihadi war, which puts another element into it. Well, you see, uh, Robert's analysis was that because these injustices that were committed, carried out, yet overlooked, never actually, nobody was ever condemned for or put on trial for the massacre of Sabra and Shatila, for example. That's just one of yes. so many injustices that have carried on since that time. And, um, and because of these injustices, and also don't forget that you have got governments in the Middle East that were placed, they were kind of puppet kings, you know, like he used to always refer to the King of Jordan as the pl- uh, plucky little king. And uh, many of the other governments and, and kingdoms in the region, including the entire Gulf states, they're all not democratic, they're dictatorial, yet they are very friendly to the West. So because of that relationship with the West, a huge sentiment was growing in the Middle East, which is anti-Westerner. So instead of just being for justice for Palestine, the sentiment were now being more and more appealing among the Middle Eastern population of blaming the West for all their grievances. And um, this is why you have had the U.S. bombing in 1983 in Lebanon. And from there, Osama bin Laden becomes a kind of a cult figure in the Middle East because he offers that alternative to the corrupt governments that were ruling or still are, most of them are in place in these regions, all across from Algeria, Tunisia, to the rest of the Middle East, and with exception of Turkey, which had a democratic the election system. The rest of them are all kind of installed puppet sure they are. Yeah, governments. Yeah. So Robert was very fascinated by the fact of this a movement that was anti-Western, and he was the only 
Western reporter who interviewed Osama bin Laden three times. And uh, he traveled the first time it was in Sudan. And then the two other times he was taken. And in one, one incident, in fact, he was also blindfolded and was brought in into the cave where Osama bin Laden was living at the time inside Afghanistan in the host province. And so he interviewed bin Laden. And then, of course, September 11 happens. So there was another twist where at that moment, Robert has been writing until then about these injustices that are being carried out. And he's been writing mostly saying, watch out, there's something dangerous is developing in the Middle East. And when September 11 happens, and that's the moment when Robert goes back and sort of hits hard by saying that we must, as reporters, ask the question why, not just tell people what is happening. So again, this is another of things that Robert got into a lot of hot waters for, because he was asking right on the night of what had happened, that we must go back to the Middle East and look at the uh, situation and reality, and, and then see the link between what is happening with the anti-Western sentiment in the West and these attacks on Western soil and make the connection to the history of the Middle East. Now, I know, Nelifer, you're an Afghan refugee in the first place, and I want to go back there in a second. What do you think Robert would make now of the fact that the Gulf states, even to an extent Saudi Arabia, are in a tacit alliance with Israel? Iran is in a tacit alliance with Iraq, and it has in Assad its man in Syria, and it has Hezbollah in Lebanon. Turkey is a free-floating, huge power, seems to be looking for a home, actually, and looking for a role. The cards have been thrown in the air in, in the Middle East, and they've landed in really a weird way. What do you think he'd make of the whole thing now? Well, you see, I think you, you probably um, interviewed Robert, last podcast he did with you, in which he talked talked about Saudi Arabia. Yes, yes, he and, did talk about Saudi Arabia. Uh, he also talked about the, the U.S. Uh, foreign policy. And his take on it was that no matter what happens in the U.S., whether is it any president in power, the U.S. foreign policy would always remain the same towards Israel. And that is unchanged. And I actually think that right now he would have said that what we are left with right now is that it's an extremely dangerous world because these alliances and agreements or cooperations that have been kind of drawn in the last few years now, they're mostly done. Some of these alliances in the Middle East are actually drawn on the sand because these alliances continue to still shift and uh, it doesn't necessarily guarantee peace and security because the injustices that are still there. So like in, in the question of Israel-Palestine, at least in the past, the U.S. presidents used to pay a bit of a lip service to the idea of the two-state solution. And the last thing that Robert was working on was his, his book that I'm uh, currently editing. And in there, he goes and unpacks the whole of the, of the conflict of Israel-Palestine. And as part of that, his argument is that the U.S. foreign policy at some point stopped to even consider the possibility of a two-state solution. So they became more and more comfortable, as especially with the Trump and the shift in, in U.S. politics itself, although the Europeans and uh, the U.N. is still trying and hoping to hold the idea of a two-state solution. But with the number of, of settlements that are developing in the occupied territories in Ramallah and in the West Bank, and you know these are colonies that are built on the Arab land, and there is no reversal of that, Therefore, there is not going to be possibility of, of a state for Palestine. So 
Because of that, of course, the other thing that has happened in the region is with a new generation, these countries are looking into diversifying their economies. All this time, their economies were based on oil. But with the peaking of the oil resources, they are considering now, first, they want access to technology. Which country in the region has the best and the most advanced possibility of technology? It's Israel. And uh, also, they're looking into diversification of other forms of economy, which includes tourism. So as a result of that, these alliances are being formed right now. But as I said before, and that's what Robert would have said, that they do not necessarily guarantee peace and security in the region. And before we go, I want to ask you about Iran, because you're born in Afghanistan. Iran is a massive, massive presence it has been a revolutionary power for you know close to 14 years, going on into, into its fifth decade now, the, the, the Iranian revolution. Uh, explain to me, or what do you think Robert or yourself would think of Iran right now and where it is, and the fact that the Americans went in to topple Saddam in order to do a number of things, but one of them was to say to the Iranians, guys, look what we can do to Saddam, we can do that to you anytime we want. In the event, it's proven that Iran is now stronger than it ever was before across the region. Yeah, you're correct. Um, you see, I remember at the time we were in Iraq together, Robert and I, and, uh, you know, during the American invasion, he was there beforehand. I went there after with him. And uh, gosh, the man was fearless. You know, he would just go right into the front lines. I mean, you know, the bomb explosions that were happening, there was kidnapping. And we used to say to each other, um, the policies to try to not let them kidnap us. So fight for life. But he was actually fearless. I mean, uh, the physical courage as well as the moral courage of Robert was utterly un unwavering. And in Iraq, we used to say at the aftermath of what happened with the U.S. invasion, first, it was an invasion that was based on false information and outright lies. There was no weapons of mass destruction. So that really undermined Americans' sort of a legal cause or argument for that war. And it angered the Muslim Arab population. The second thing, Robert and I used to say to each other, oh, Iraq saved Iran. Because what unleashed in Iraq, and now we're coming to the establishment of ISIS and all the other Al-Qaeda and branching out to other parts of the world from there, uh, including Syria currently. So it was the war in Iraq that actually saved Iran from an American invasion because Americans and Israelis have tried in many ways to contain Iran, and it has not been very easy and possible. And, and they've made a lot of mistakes. And I think the Iraq war was one of the pivotal mistakes that was made at the time. Because one of the things we forget historically, and this goes back to my background, because I grew up in Kabul in Afghanistan during the Soviet invasion. And this is exactly around the time when there is the Iranian revolution happens. There was a bloody cold war between Saudi Arabia and Iran in the region. They are using all these other countries as proxies. So Afghanistan, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq. These are proxies between these two kind of uh, regional superpowers that since the Islamic revolution in Iran, they are fighting for the soul of Islam. And they're fighting for power and influence in the region. And because of that, of course, that Iraq war gave Iranians a much stronger hand in controlling the Shia majority. 
They control the Shia majority in Lebanon, which is more than 60% now. They also have a huge sway of influence over Afghanistan. And because of that, of course, the American policy towards Iran has failed. And this is why they're considering now to try to go back and bring it back on the table, because all the other attempts in trying to curtail or contain Iran has actually failed at a huge cost. Sadly, I would say at a huge human cost, because in each one of these proxy wars, there are civilians, there are people that are displaced, they're dispossessed, they're the ones who are casualties, and they're the ones who are doing the dying. So it doesn't actually affect the Ayatollahs in Iran or the uh, king of Saudi Arabia, but it does have a, a really negative impact on the region, on the population of, of, of these, these countries. So Nella Frelak, I'd like to close now but talk about Robert himself and this movie. This, this movie is now available in the IFI because there's lots and lots of people will be fascinated by this discussion. Lots of younger listeners may not even know about Robert. Lots of journalists. The one good thing, one, the one thing I always said about Robert is my dad told me years ago that give me a man with no enemies and I'll show you a man with no backbone. And what actually I loved about Robert is he had enemies within his own trade. And that's really essential. Once you have enemies within your own trade, you're doing something right. So tell me about the movie in the IFI, how people can see it, because I, I do think it's, it's essential for budding journalists, for analysts, for just people who are interested in the Middle East to get a, to get a sense of, of Robert Fisk. What's going on to mark the first anniversary well, of his death? Yes. So October 30th is the first anniversary of Robert's death. And to mark that, we're doing a screening, which is a private screening. But as of that day, the film, the documentary called This Is Not A Movie, and that's a word from Robert saying, because he used to say that the conflict and the war in the Middle East is a bloody tragedy. It is not a movie. So the title of the film is called This Is Not A Movie, and it will be available on the IFI home platform. So anyone can access it. And it's made easy that way, especially given the restrictions on the number of attendance for public events. So this is available on the platform, digital platform, and people can go to IFI and watch it. Brilliant. Well, listen, I'm going to give that out again at the end of the podcast. Nelifer Pazira Fisk, the, right, the wife of Robert Fisk. Brilliant to talk to you, and I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you, David. Nelifer was fantastic there. The, the movie sounds really interesting. It does sound good, and you can see it at IFI. Just go to IFI.ie. Yeah. Have you ever been in the IFI, John? Yes, found it. it's a beautiful place, actually. A Quaker meeting hall is what it was. Oh. One of the original Quaker meeting halls right. in Ireland. It's a beautiful building. Got a yeah, really, really interesting history. Lovely cafe and stuff. Lovely cafe. It's, yeah. it's the kind of a place you'd go in and hang out for a while. So, no, that fascinating stuff. And you know where I'm going next week on my holidays? Where? It's Beirut. Are you? Yeah. I'm, we remember we, sun holiday. We were yeah, exactly. Remember, did you ever meet the dead Kennedys? Holidays in Cambodia. Yeah, one of the great tracks of the late 1970s. Yeah, yeah. well, holidays in Lebanon. You know, got to be fine. I do you know what I think that's going to be fascinating. Yeah, because like as a country, it has completely and utterly collapsed. It has completely and utterly collapsed. I want to see what happened there. Yeah, I want to see how it happened. I want to see why it happened. I mean, there's the ethnic religious geopolitical, all that stuff going on yeah. in Lebanon. But I also that a to, big explosion? I want to see why the currency collapsed, why you have this extraordinary instability. Because what always amazed me about Lebanon, many things amazed me, if you travel around the world, particularly in Latin America, the Lebanese are the richest people in many countries, right? 
Lebanese traders yeah, yeah. in Nigeria, in West Africa, in Mexico, all over the Caribbean, all over Latin America. They're actually called Turks in Latin America, even though they're all from Lebanon, right? right. And they Weird. are hugely influential, amazingly wealthy people. Mm. So like Carlos Slim, the richest man in the world, Lebanese. Carlos Menem, the last president of Argentina, Lebanese. They're Lebanese oh, everywhere. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, they're yeah. really, you know. But, but I mean, Beirut itself was the Paris of the Middle East. Yeah, so I want to go and see it. Yeah, I want to go and see it. And interestingly, I'll tell you, so the only real Lebanese person I know is Nassim Taleb, right? You know, the black swan geezer, old mate. So I texted him the other night and I said, man, I'm going to go to Lebanon. Give me some places that I can go. And he said, I'm going to be there, so I'll take you out. Excellent. Brilliant. So so it's Lebanon. And I'm going with Murphy. So we might even go to Syria. We might even go to Damascus over the, just for a little mooch around. Bring a camera and take your digital recorders. Okay, well you'll have to you'll have to you'll have to take you with up that. on that, yeah. Well, that's a very interesting expression, and I'll leave it there. Thanks again to all our Patreons. And of course, on Patreon you get ad free, you get the course, you get ad max, and the course is a 14 lecture tour around the world of money, past, present, future, the whole thing. You get the notes, you get the reading list, all that. It's all on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Listen to this Acast show ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership. Or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.